what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast it's your host chris and today my guest is actually returning she was on here way back when i first started this podcast i guess it's not way back because i just started in may of this year but anyways it is none other than megan down all right so originally i had her on the podcast to talk about her phenomenal book uh which introduced me to her work uh the problem with everything if you haven't read it go check it out it is this great kind of book about you know how things have changed and you know uh with the me too movement with cancel culture with just all these different issues and she has a really interesting, unique perspective. And I just absolutely love Megan's writing. But anyways, anyways, the other day I reached out to Megan. I'm like, hey, you need to come back on the podcast because she just did a phenomenal episode with Lee Stein about how getting an MFA is kind of like uh, joining an MLM, right? So they were talking a lot about writing and the business of being writing uh, a writer and how you have to like market yourself and is it worth it to go to school for writing all these things and megan was asking lee a bunch of amazing questions i was introduced to lee's work and hopefully she'll be on the podcast at some point but anyways i was sitting there i'm like well i want to ask megan a bunch of these questions so i told megan she should come back on the podcast and she agreed so in this conversation we discuss you know what it's like being a writer what makes a good writer do you need to go to school uh how much does quality matter and are people natural born writers or can you improve your skills because megan actually uh she's been hosting you know uh master classes and workshops for a while because she is just a phenomenal essayist like i i don't i don't want to sound like too much of a stan but like megan is legit one of my favorite writers like i i read her books and i'm just like how does she do this so so yeah um she has a master class the next one is coming up very soon and you actually have to apply for it and she's been hosting it online due to covid so i'm gonna link all that down in the description below the deadline is uh december 20th so make sure if you're interested if you want to improve your writing skills check it out but yeah in this conversation we cover a bunch of those topics what she teaches you know um up and coming writers and all that. But we also talk about kind of the, the climate for writers because Megan, one of the things that inspired me about her writing and one of the reasons I originally had her on the podcast is because, you know, to be a writer, to share your ideas, like you have to put them out into the marketplace. And right now there is a possibility that if you say something that people disagree with, you will get dogpiled and it is a very scary and crazy thing. So I asked her like, hey, how do we do this? And I actually, you know, I, I toss out a theory to her in this conversation that I've had about cancel culture and all that stuff. So it's pretty interesting. But anyways, make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Megan over on Twitter. She is also a podcast host. She has the unspeakable podcast. It is a phenomenal podcast. Uh, right before uploading this episode, I was listening to Megan's conversation with a previous guest, Batya Ungar Sargon. And yeah, it was completely different, completely unique. I love the conversations Megan has. So make sure you check out her podcast. And again, if you want to become a better writer, I highly, highly, highly recommend you apply for Megan's upcoming masterclass. All that stuff will be linked down in the description below. All right. But before we get started, speaking of social media, if you're not yet, make sure you're following me over at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. I love chatting with all of you, but uh, this way you don't miss any upcoming episodes, other projects I'm working on. Um, I also write a ton. Uh, just this morning, I wrote a piece over on Substack. And uh, I touch on a little bit of, you know, what Megan and I discuss about do you need college for certain careers, like becoming a writer and all this other stuff. But yeah, the piece is largely focused on college and eliminating uh, student loan debt and all that kind of stuff. So if you want check that out. That is up for free. But speaking of Substack, if you become a paid subscriber, uh, like some of you right now, you're listening to an early, early version of this episode um, for paid subscribers. It's a little, little tiny bit of money. It's $5 a month or $50 uh, for the year. You get all the episodes early. So check that out. That's also down in the description below. And I really appreciate everybody who subscribes because it helps support the podcast and what I'm doing and all that. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with the wonderful Megan Dow.
All right. Hello, Megan. Welcome back. How are you doing today? I'm well, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, I, I brought you back because we're going to be talking about the fun career of writing and some of the other projects you've been working on outside of the, the podcast and all that. So I guess I guess the first way to start this out, because I am a huge fan of your writing, but for those who are unfamiliar, what's what's kind of your background in writing? What's what's that look like? Oh, well, um, I am known primarily as an essayist. So, um, I mean, I've been publishing all kinds of work since basically the early 90s. I started publishing kind of big, big sort of strange literary long essays in the mid 90s. Um, And yeah, I kind of just did this thing where I would write a personal essay that was using my experience as a lens through which to look at something bigger in the culture. So I guess my kind of one of my signature pieces is called My Misspent Youth, which ended Mm -hmm. up being the title of my first book, my first collection of essays. And that was originally in The New Yorker. And it was about um, how I managed to get almost $80,000 in debt um, by sort of as a result of romanticizing this kind of creative bohemian life in, in New York. And, um, you know, it was a combination of student loans and just living in Manhattan as a as a freelancer in the 90s and certainly not living extravagantly and actually um, making making decent, decent income. Um, but I just kind of managed to get completely broke. So it's it's kind of an inventory of money I had spent um, as I tried to uh, as I tried to live this what I perceived to be a kind of shabby authentic bohemian life the kind of life that I saw watching Woody Allen movies as a kid like yeah I thought those people you know didn't necessarily have a lot of money because you know they're they had frayed oriental rugs and you know paint you know paint chipping on the radiators and stuff like that but yeah uh, it was in for a rude awakening anyway so that was my first piece and then I've continued to write Uh, essays and books and journalism um, for the, you know, about the last 25 years or so. So. Yeah. And, and yeah. And speaking of, you know, the dead and everything, what, what inspired me to have you back on you recently just released an episode and everybody needs to go check out the unspeakable podcast, but you just had uh, Lee Stein on there. And I was like, yes, this is like, and and you've gotten a lot of praise for that episode. It's fantastic. And like (laughs) I ride, I'm currently working on my own little project and everything. And, and yeah, you, you recently had a masterclass, but I, I wanted to chat with you about just the life of being a writer and all that. So when, when you started out writing and, going to college, I guess we'll start there. Like how, how much did you benefit? Do you think like looking back on it, like your formal education, I believe you went to Columbia, like how much? Yeah. Uh, well, I went to Vassar undergrad Oh, uh, and then I went to Columbia for grad school. So (laughs) that's how I got into all that debt. So yeah. What were you going to ask? How much, (laughs) what what was the point of my education? uh, Yeah. Like, I guess, I guess that's something I'm wondering because, you know, uh, you and Lee were talking about it and, and I'm curious. So me, I dropped out of college after one semester, I went to junior college and all that. And I just, you know, I realized I was halfway decent at writing and I just kind of kept on going and all that, but you know, this formal education, like, looking back on it worth it did it help did it give you a leg up getting jobs and all that kind of stuff like i'm curious about that uh in a word yes that's not to say that i couldn't have succeeded if i hadn't done that but i came from an environment where there was no question but you were going to go to college so my my Mm. parents had been um they were from Southern Illinois. They were the, de- the first in their families to go to college and they were real sort of strivers. And mm-hmm. we, it's, it's a whole other long story. People can read about that in my book, some of my books if they want, but to make a long story short, they ended up living in a town in New Jersey, a, an affluent suburb that we had mm. no business living in because we didn't have no <laughs> money. Although but we, my mother was very good at very, very, very good at, at faking it. I mean, to her credit. Anyway, so we lived in this town that basically existed to have the college sticker on the on the back of the car. Mm. Um, and so everything was about elite colleges. Like it was just a complete obsession. So um, I I think I conflated wanting to get out of the house and wanting to be on my own with going to a certain kind of college. So 
uh, I went, I, I, you know, the college I went to, I certainly got an excellent education. I don't think it was the best fit for me in the end, but this is very circuitous way of saying, um, I think it did benefit me because it kind of gave me the right set of cultural signifiers, mm-hmm. a certain vocabulary that back then you really needed if you were going to like move to New York and get a job in publishing. Um, you needed to have read certain books. You needed, you know, to have, you know, there was a certain, you have had a sort of codified set of, of mm-hmm. references. And so, you know, going to the college that I did helps me get that job. And, you know, you know, certain people and all of that now. That was before the internet. I mean, there, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, we literally had typewriters. I, it was 1992 when I graduated from college. It was a very different world. Are those are those like in the classroom? Like, does every desk have like a typewriter, or how does that work? <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't mean that. No, no, no. We had no, but a lot. I mean, a lot of people. I yeah. I mean, we did Hutchins. We did have computers. I'm saying, like, my first job, in addition to this hulking giant computer. Mm. We had, um, you know, I had like a Selectric typewriter that to type envelopes and stuff because you couldn't print, you know, they didn't, you yeah. weren't able to anything to fill out a form or anything like that. You mm. couldn't do on the computer. The computer was like specifically for certain things. Um, so yeah, at that time, the gatekeeping was just very different because only a certain number of people from certain kind of class background had access to certain kinds of fields. Um, and so writing, if you wanted to kind of be somebody who like wrote for the New Yorker, for example, Mm -hmm. there was a feeling that you had to access it through this particular kind of door. Now, I don't think that was entirely true. There was all sorts of ways of being a writer, obviously. I mean, like Raymond Carver was the hero at that time. And, you know, that was a very different kind of aesthetic and background and all of that, um, but for me, for a variety of reasons, that was my idea of what you were supposed to do. So, um, yeah, I, it, it, it did help me. And then I was, as I talked about in the interview with Lee, I had the idea then that um, I needed to go to like not only an MFA program, but a certain MFA program mm. at Columbia to have the kind of life that that I wanted to have. I don't think it necessarily made me a better writer. I mean, it well, it gave me time to figure out how to write. I certainly mm-hmm. got a huge amount out of it. But if I hadn't gone to an MFA program, I probably would have found my way into yeah. writing anyway. So yeah, the 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 college route is something that I'm, I'm always torn on. Like uh, a while back, I had Brian Kaplan on who wrote a controversial book called uh, The Case Against Education. And he's an economist. So he looks at it very like rationally. And he looks at it as like college degrees are a big sign of like, you know, it's like social signaling It's basically yeah. showing people like, hey, here, I went here. And then, you know, it's easier to kind of just look at it and say, okay, you probably know what you're doing. It's, so it's a shorthand. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I look at that aspect and I have my beautiful girlfriend who's in her master's program for social work. And it's like, yeah, you need school because you're like dealing with people's lives and all that. But uh, you and I, we also had the wonderful Bacha on and a lot of her book, Bad News, is about there's still this sort of uh, gatekeeping when it comes to like, you know, professional journalism. So I guess, you know, when when you're doing like your master classes and stuff like that, I'm curious what type of people attend are these people who have already gotten their degrees? Are they people who are just like, Hey, I like to write. I want to get my thoughts out mm. on paper. You know, how do you talk with them about it? Do you, do you navigate some people towards the formal education? I'm wondering about that. Well, they're adults. So the, the private workshops that I teach, sometimes they're in my apartment and they're weekend long kinds of things. Lately I've been doing them on zoom and those are, um, you know, once, once a week for six weeks or eight weeks or whatever. Um, it's people who it's, a, it's adults. So it's not, these aren't people who like are college age or anything. Mm. I mean, so, um, yeah, there are various places. I mean, some of them have published a little bit, a few of them have published books, but they just want to understand how better to write, um, in the personal essay or, or memoir form. So yeah, the class is specifically for, you know, first person narrative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, some of them are in their twenties and have other jobs and, but some of them are retired, um, and just always wanted to write. Some of them really do want to publish. And that is a goal. Many of them actually don't care about publishing. They just want to 
kind of collect their thoughts in a coherent way and try to make sense out of their experience. And that's actually really, I love that because to me, first person writing is, it's an exercise in taking your experience and making it into something, making it into a piece of art or creating Mm -hmm. some new entity out of what might be a kind of um, chaotic set set of experiences or or feelings you know so it's yeah yeah, it's it's all kinds of people yeah and and it's interesting because you know i came across you know uh your your most your most recent book and i just started reading the other ones and everything and i'm usually not a fan of just like collections of essays and everything so sit back megan i'm gonna tell you a quick little story all right so i was a drug addict for a long time got sober went to 12-step meetings and something i started learning real quick is that we all think that we have just the most unique story out there right like i am unique like something they say you know in recovery is terminal uniqueness like you know <laughs> like, like it's crazy and and i saw this you know i'm you know uh coming up on nine and a half years sober and i i've seen it throughout my entire time every every person you come across but i hear it i'm just like you have the same story like we all have the same story like some of the minor details might be a little bit different but anyway so when it comes to your style of writing and stuff like i got hooked in your book i'm like damn Megan knows how to do this, right? So when you're talking with people about this, like, uh, and teaching them how to do like memoirs or these personal essays, because I do find it interesting seeing just people uh, uh, like their thought process going through different experiences and all that kind of stuff. And it does help us connect. But how how do people stand out or, or step apart? Because you do, I'm sure you come across a lot of people like, hey, Megan, my story is completely unique. And you're like, that's not that unique, right? So how, yeah. how, do, how do you navigate people through that aspect of it and kind of standing out and having something different with their same right. old story? Well, I always say, you know, a, a memoir, uh, most of the really famous memoirs out there are about some kind of harrowing experience or trauma or you know, abusive upbringing or something like that. So you should count yourself as lucky if you don't have a story to tell in, in a certain way, right? <laughs> That's a good so, point. I mean, you know, there's there's so many approaches. I think that one thing that people sometimes forget is that in, in nonfiction writing, it's about telling. I think people take a lot of writing workshops. If they take writing workshops, they often take fiction workshops or you know, I guess at any kind, and it's always show, don't tell. Like that's the mantra in screenwriting, for instance, mm-hmm. show, don't tell, show your scenes. And in this genre, you do want to have scenes and you do want to show, of course, but it's very much a matter of telling your story. You're you're establishing a, an intimacy with your reader where you're essentially saying, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you about what happened to me. You know, mm-hmm. you want to have them feel that you're you're sharing a secret with them. And that way, even if you don't have like the most dramatic kind of narrative arc, you have this kind of thing that you're doing where you're you're letting them in on on your experience and you're you're telling them not only what happened, but why it's meaningful to you and maybe mm. what you learned through the experience or what it made you think about in terms of larger ideas in the world. And mm. if you get into that telling groove, you can kind of um, get around the problem of not having a great story to tell sometimes. If you just tell your, you know, you tell your, your ideas and you, you say what you have to say, but if you don't have like some extremely inherently dramatic story, um, there are ways around that. So yeah. that's, that's one thing I say, you know, there's yeah. all kinds of things. Yeah. And, and something that uh, I, I heard you discussing too was uh how how the whole kind of publishing world has kind of changed because of the internet right so for example my little self plug like i'm currently writing uh my next book and stuff and while i'm in the process of it i'm like do i pitch it to publishers because that sounds like such a pain in the ass megan every time i think about it i start to get a migraine right like it's like oh you got to find an agent that wants to work with you and then you know then you got to pitch these publishers and it just sounds like so much hassle because Right now, like I can literally take whatever scraps I have and just go publish it on Amazon. Just boop, here it is, right? And I have my own things on, you know, social media. I can go promote it. So when when looking at how things have changed, like it sounded like you were kind of on the fence, like in between, like is self-publishing, you know, even a thing right mm. now? Or or maybe I, I was interpreting it incorrectly. But what are your thoughts on publishing in 2021 versus 
self-publishing because there are people like the famous story you always hear is the 50 shades of gray writer right, right. or even um the martian right that, that started off as a self-published work boom blew up so what are your overall thoughts for writers these days when it comes to the headache of publishers or self-publishing well you know the advantages of traditional publishing are first of all they pay you in advance mm. so even if it's a very small yeah. advance they are paying you something yeah. And you get to keep that money even if your book doesn't sell very many copies. I mean, this is kind of a magical thing. I don't know that there's any other sphere uh, of of entertainment, you know, especially like in a music business, like that would never happen. Like the label, the mm. old fashioned system, the label would give you, you know, they they would they would produce your record and then they'd send you out on tour. But the only, you know, the more money the artist made, it just went back to the label and back into touring. That's why they that's why merchandise became such a big thing. Yeah. They really only make money on the road in a certain way. So it was always kind of amazing that in book publishing, you still had these big, big, you know, companies that would pay writers, you know, take a gamble on writers and pay people money to produce a book that nine times out of 10 doesn't sell the vast majority of books uh -huh. lose money. So if you have a, you know, regular publisher, you, you get an advance and then they make your book and they fact check it and they copy edit it. It looks nice. And professional people are doing that and you're not yeah. paying a dime, right? They yeah. pay you. So that's pretty nice. Um, I still think that if you can, if you can publish the book you want to publish with a big house, that's better because you mm. have people helping you. If what you want to publish either cannot be published by a big house because it's either not really good enough or just it's some kind of problematic material that nobody wants to read, you know, whatever, whatever the reason, you know, there's mm -hmm. like a million reasons why a major publisher wouldn't want to publish something ranging from this material sucks <laughs> to <laughs> this is brilliant, but this is just you know, really dissonant with what is going on in the culture right now. We're not going to publish this. I mean, mm -hmm. okay. So self-publishing in that case, I think it, I, you know, five years ago, I would have probably turned my nose up at that, but yeah. I think a, lot, a lot has changed. Um, but the problem is that you're going to have to, you have to, you know, lay out a certain amount of money just to get mm -hmm. that up. And then how are you going to, how are you going to promote it? How are you possibly, you don't have the ability to get it into stores the way you're, mm -hmm. you know, random house by penguin does you just yeah you don't so i don't know i mean you tell me why do you think it's why why how would you go about like actually selling a book that you self-published so it's it's funny because you're asking me the question i was just about to ask you so i'm gonna flip i'm gonna kind of <laughs> put myself in your shoes because you you have you have history, credibility, and you have an audience, right? So I'm thinking if I was, if I was Megan, right? And uh, you've been focusing on the podcast and teaching up and coming writers and all that, but let's say you just got the bug and you're like, I have an amazing idea for a book and I wanna to put together some more essays or something like that. I, I see you writing that book and you have, you have this audience, right? Because I, you were one of my first guests. You were here four months ago, right? And since then, I have like 120 episodes. I know, I you're been... so prolific. I don't know how you do it. Like... Like, I'm, I'm trying to dial back. <laughs> but but I, I've heard from a lot of authors that publishers aren't helping that much with like, uh, like depending on your status as right. an author, they're not helping that much with promotion. So I'm sitting here, I'm like, if I was Megan, right? Like you got your podcast, right? You have all the people listening to Unspeakable. Every time you you uh, publish a podcast, there's a quick little plug. Hey, I'm working on a book. Hey, got a book coming out, right? Every single listener hears that. Now, now you're getting marketer, Chris, right? Then you have tens of thousands of followers on Twitter, right? Those are some more people. You have a bunch of friends who also have tens of thousands of followers. So, so just looking at your specific situation, I'm like, why the hell would Megan work with a publisher? Because she has mm. this platform now, something, but this is something that you and Lee were talking about where we're, we live in a world where you have to be out there. You have to be getting your voice out and everything like that. So, so now when you flip it back to me, you know, I do have some loyal following and things, you know, I've been around and there are some people who do enjoy my writing and yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I've done. You know, my books aren't bestsellers, uh, uh, but it's been a lot of the loyal following. So have you, have you kind of considered that? Like if you're somebody of status, because if you look around, like there's YouTubers left and right, just writing books that are at 
pretty much yeah. ghost ridden and stuff. So, so what do you, um, what do you think about that? If you have a following for a certain kind of book, I would definitely consider self publishing. Um, mm. I would, uh, yeah, I mean there, I would like to take, um, you know, some, there's a whole bunch of pieces I wrote, you know, during the Trump years, for instance, mm. uh, for medium that, um, I think are pretty good. They're pretty robust pieces. They were largely paywalled. Not a lot of people read them. So, you know, I'm, I am actually thinking very seriously about taking those and collecting them somehow and self-publishing them. Um, but if I was going to write like a brand new book, say I sat down tomorrow and wrote a new book, I would still go to a traditional publisher because even though you're totally right that um, the publicity now is very much on the onus of the author, um, you know, let's say that there were no publicity departments, even like, you know, even say Simon and Schuster all of a sudden decided we're not going to have any publicists. That's that's mm -hmm. not going to happen. But, yeah. you know, it might happen for somebody, you know, who's not a big star. You know, they're going to say, say, like, we're not you're on your own. You have to do this on totally on your own. Um, that's that's fine. That would put you um, kind of even with self-publishing in that regard. The problem is who, who is going to physically make that book? Who is going to market it? I know you're only talking about ebooks with self-published. Well, no, actually, you can self-publish a physical copy. Mm -hmm. Publicity is one thing. Mm -hmm. Marketing and actually and production is another thing. And I can't. I can be on social media all day promoting my book and talking about it on my podcast and probably doing a better job than a lot of in-house publicists at big at big publishing companies. Yes, mm -hmm. but I don't know how to actually get my book in somebody's hands. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different equation. And and I don't, you know, I would have to hire a copy editor, a production yeah. person, a designer. I mean, a million things. And I don't have the, I don't have the money for that. I yeah. need somebody to pay me. That's right? the way this works. Yeah. That's the, that's the deal. <laughs> so it, it almost sounds like, like a trade-off, right? Like you're almost like, I'll work with a publisher because it gets rid of res other responsibilities. Cause like you're saying, like, I know a lot of uh, authors who are, who have been self-publishing for a long time. And yeah, they, you know, if you even read their books on self-publishing, it's like, you got to find an artist and they'll be like, here, you can go to Fiverr, you can go to this side. And then you got to find editors, you know, and some people have, you know, ed uh, proofreaders and then line editors and the ones who are looking yeah. at structure and there are a lot of moving pieces. So I guess it is like, Hey, do you want to do that? Or do you just want to let this publisher take a cut and you know, go on your I'm, way. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, you know, in my case, I would self-publish a collection of pieces that had already been edited. I mean, they were published mm. in a publication and there was an editor there. You know, when I was writing for Medium, I wasn't, you know, they, I, there was a stable of regular columnists who were, who were functioning as regular, as if it was a mm. ma magazine and we had editing and we had copy editing and all that. So those pieces are finished and they're copy edited. Mm -hmm. And they're back checked. So it would be a matter of like getting a product, the whole production side. But yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, like Lee was saying on, in the interview, it's, it's pay to play. Um, and that's, that's hard. You know, yeah. most people don't have that. I mean, I understand if you think that you're going to make enough money selling, selling them because you get all the money, you don't have to give it to the publisher, but mm -hmm. you've still got a There's an out, an initial outlay. It's pretty significant, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you make a great point about uh, you know, uh, the the advance that you get too to even get started because that's kind of paying you for your time because, you know, you it takes time a lot of time to sit there and write a book. Yeah, years. I, I here one of the one of the main reasons I want to talk with you as well about the the writing thing is because I have been on this kick for a while now looking at luck versus success. I, I write a lot about the myth of meritocracy and stuff because I know that hard work is helpful, right? Like I'm a crazy person. I work and work and work. Like we were talking about, I do this podcast and I'm writing and then I have the kid and all that. But anyways, anyways, when you're, when you're talking with like, you know, the, the people who come to your, your workshops and everything like that, I'm wondering your thoughts on like quality in combination with luck, right? Like I get that, you know, luck is like opportunity plus being prepared, you know, but as you know, 
quality is so subjective, you know, and I get concerned that people are going to be like, oh, nobody picked up my book or no, this piece didn't perform well. And it's like, hey, maybe it just didn't, you know, or maybe that one person who saw your pitch for a book just didn't like it. Like, you know, there's obviously the famous story of JK Rowling. Like these people get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to pick the winners, right? But how many books actually become bestsellers? So oh, I'm always looking school. at that. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm like, do you guys even know what you're talking about? So anyways, when you're when you're talking with these people who want to become writers, how much do you have them focus on quality and how much do you explain the luck aspect of these things? Well, I mean, both. I would I would be uh I would be negligent in my duties as a writing teacher if I didn't care about quality. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think there really has to be both. I mean, quality is subjective, but it's also a subjective term. So mm. what I do mean, you mean by that? Well, I mean, what's quality to one person is low quality. What's high quality to one person is low quality to somebody else. So, yeah. Um, I mean, there's just, you know, quality in terms of basic sentence structure and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's one level. But then there's issues like pacing and and, you know, tone and. Mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. Um, style is certainly subjective. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, if you've got like a, like a really kind of sexy topic, then that is going to help you in the, in the marketplace. Mm. Um, so, you know, if there's something that's very much of the moment or if there's some kind of, you know, if somebody had like, an amazing story of of trauma that also, you know, had to do with some kind of social justice issue that was very much in the news right now. Yeah. And like a celebrity was involved and an influencer, like, boom, that would be like the sexiest combination ever. You know, yeah. that's so, <laughs> there are just so many things, but, you know, I don't, I don't think that something that's really low quality, I, I really, I don't think I've ever seen somebody who's, who's, who's low quality but got really lucky. I don't think I've seen them yeah. sustain. I mean, they can maybe with it in any medium, right? Like they can maybe have one thing initially and then yeah. you've got to deliver again because you get lucky once usually, you know, you get, <laughs> the, you know, the big break. If, if anybody gets that, you don't, you don't get that again. So you've yeah. got to keep it up. Yeah. And you know, with that, because something I learned, so I, I used to work at a, it's not really a content farm, but it was called text broker. And it was like this kind of like a broker, but yeah, yeah, it was a text broker between clients and freelance writers. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had friends who like needed extra money. I'm like, oh, just sign up for text broker. And I think that's when I realized like, oh, like I'm not terrible at writing because I see people. And like you said, like something like sentence structure, I'm sitting there. I'm like, well, did you graduate high school? And I don't mean to be mean, but like, sometimes you're just like, how have you survived this long? Like, you can't, like, can you write emails? But anyways, from your experience too, and, and you've been writing for years now, uh, how much do you think is like kind of this inborn talent to either storytell or write and just kind of get it and how like do you think there's like a ceiling or people can constantly mm. improve and what aspects of their writing do they work on improving right. um yeah that's a really good question and it's kind of the question if you teach writing i think there's a basic talent i think that you know really really successful literary writers or even any actually even like very commercial writers they have some they have some intuitive sense of their own style, whether, mm -hmm. you know, you could be James Joyce or you could be like, you know, some best-selling, you could be Danielle Steele. Mm -hmm. Both James Joyce and Danielle Steele know who they are as writers. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, they, they figure out what they do best and they do it to death. Like that's what you have to do in any creative pursuit. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think that, yeah, you need some kind of innate talent. Uh, but then you just need to, well, first of all, you have to read a lot. I mean, read the main, the best thing you can do to teach yourself to write is to read. I mean, yeah. that's, you got to read. Um, but, uh, and then you got to, you know, you read and you read the right stuff and you like copy stuff, you know, every, mm -hmm. you know, artists always steal. So you kind of, you kind of rip somebody off who you really like and you, you kind of imitate them for a while. And then one day you kind of, figure out how to do it your own way and yeah. then that becomes your style. So, um, 
yeah, you know, in terms of what can be taught, I think you can you can help people take their raw material that's mm-hmm. been generated by their raw talent and say like, well, you know, this needs to go here. This part is too slow. This part is, you know, you need more specifics. You mm-hmm. need more details. I mean, one thing people always do, I think the the, the word that I write the most in the margins uh, by far is specific. Be specific, mm. be specific. In any given sentence, in any given paragraph, there are probably 12 opportunities to use a specific detail mm-hmm. when a general thing has been put there. And yeah. people just forget. It's like you can constantly be more specific. So something like that is very teachable. Yeah. Um, so those are just, those are craft issues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And speaking of specific, like uh, I've been doing more freelance work. Uh, Botnia's published a few of my pieces over at Newsweek and, and finally working with someone who edits and stuff like this, especially like the specificity, like she'll just like leave a note and it's, those little things have really helped improve because now I'm catching it as I'm writing. So, so yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, I, I wanted to ask you too, cause like you said, like you have to read too. So something I've been thinking about a lot, right? So I'm at like 353 books this year, which is like crazy, but here's, here's my trick. I do audiobooks, right? So I, I read a ton, but I've been thinking, especially cause I'm trying to improve my own writing and stuff like that. It's not the same as looking at the words on the paper on the page because I'm a very slow reader, which is why I do audio and I can listen at the store when I'm driving or walking or whatever. But I'm not seeing like that sentence structure and, you know, the pacing because I, you know, it's just words coming through. So I'm trying to develop a new strategy for going into 2022 so I can try to do both and still get my reading in yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Like how much do you pay attention to like the sentence structure or, or what if what are you teaching people to get from the reading? Is it style? Is it the sentence structure and all that? Because I feel like that's what me or even other audio readers mm. readers are, are, um, are missing. I guess what I want people to get from the reading is a sense of what you can get away with as a, <laughs> as a writer. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like you, you read, you read and you say, oh, this person did this. Like, th- you know, this is a thing I've been wanting to do, but they actually just took it and ran with it. And so th- this is allowed. You're mm-hmm. allowed to do it this way. I think that's that's what reading gives you as a writer. It's mm. so funny that you, you're talking about the audiobooks. I have never thought about this before, but in listening to you, I wonder, because I, I never listen to audiobooks. I listen to podcasts constantly, yeah. but I really just still read with books. And I wonder if people who kind of grow up primarily listening to audiobooks if it makes it harder for them to actually put words on a on a paper on a page i mean there's got to be some kind of like um kind of brain study i'm sure people have done studies on this because so much of writing like you you look at the i i think that if i only listened to audiobooks and then i tried to actually write it would just feel overwhelming it would be like listening to music and then trying to compose something in notation Mm -hmm. like i don't see how you yeah make that connection so this is something that i've thought about a lot maybe maybe we just leave all this behind and we go become neuroscientists and figure this out yeah (laughs) so something i've noticed about my own writing which i'm you know i'm i I debate on it because it's like a kind of style choice but i noticed that i write a little bit more conversationally right which is good yeah Yeah. it 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 can be like but then i i look at other writing where i'm like because i read you know a lot of like psychiatrists and uh professors and stuff and they're very formal and talking about studies so i try to find that balance but i i'm curious if you've noticed this too i've been thinking about it a lot lately it seems like more you know millennial writers have that kind of uh conversational writing and i don't know if this is just in my head or if you've noticed that have you noticed like that kind of stylistic change like over the years, because I feel like, you know, when I read a book for, by like a millennial, someone like in my, around my age, like late twenties, early thirties, I'm like, oh yeah, like I did this. Like it's, I, I'm like, am I just used to this or is it because of my audiobook listening? I don't know. So have you noticed yeah. that? Um, well, I always am telling students to be conversational. Mm. I want them to, because it is this like telling, like, you know, you're, you're talking to your reader. I want to tell you a story. I'm I'm always using that that word. It's funny. I never thought about it as a millennial thing. I always think about it as a as a new journalism thing. I that mm. kind of style came around 
you know, in the early 70s with, with people like Tom Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson and Joan Didion. And, you know, they were they were doing a kind of um, a, a kind of narrative nonfiction. It was reporting, but it was essayistic. It was reflective. But they were talking to you. It was, you know, yeah. it, was it was very kind of rock and roll. So, um, mm -hmm. huh. I wonder if, um, gosh, I never thought of it as a millennial thing. Interesting. Yeah. See, we, we can have fun conversations, Megan. I'll, I'll, <laughs> next time I come across it, I'll let you know. But you yeah. mentioned the journalism thing, and I've noticed, so something else I've noticed, I really enjoy books from millennial journalists, right? So a variety of journalists have written a book on a specific topic or whatever, and I've noticed like that I will just breeze through those books because it seems just like I don't have to just think too much but i am getting the information and i'm learning and so it i i enjoy it but yeah i i don't know i'll i'll let you know the next time i'm reading one of those I'm like, hey, what do you think what do you think yeah about send this? me a passage that's so huh, okay yeah it'll, it'll be yeah. something that we could both keep an eye out for but when when you were talking you were just talking too about uh what you can get away with right like so there's like stylistically and then there's like can you say this in public? You know, you had a great conversation. Everybody should be listening to your podcast, by the way. Your conversation with Sam Harris, I loved it because I'm like, oh, okay. Megan understands me. I don't want to be the the guy who ruins the dinner party with these weird questions. <laughs> but but something you were talking about is uh, people, you know, uh, in your classes are kind of afraid of like the cancel culture aspect, right? And you kind of let Lee answer that, but I'm like, I want Megan on so I can ask her like, what's what's your kind of advice on writing on controversial topics? Like, for example, earlier today, I released a, a piece that wasn't picked up by any publications about how liberal media forced me to listen to right-wing media just to get proper information about the Rittenhouse trial, because I was like, wait, you're missing a lot of things that I know are out there somewhere. And, you know, I've gotten some backlash, some people are like, oh yeah, but what what's the advice that you've, you're giving people about writing about somewhat mm -hmm. controversial topics and and the fear around internet dogpiling yeah you know i mean i used to tell my students just you know get get over it if you're afraid of saying something <laughs> because you think that you're going to be dragged on twitter then then you don't deserve to be a writer like that's our job our job is to have people be be mad at you I always say you know nobody will love you unless somebody hates you yeah really however I also have had students say, well, that's easy for you to say because you have decades of track record behind you before Twitter even came along. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, if I was to get totally canceled on Twitter, I have a foundation that exists separately from social media. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, Gen X is so lucky. We are the last generation to have grown up before the world completely changed. Yeah. We are really, we, I just feel so lucky that I like had a relationship to the real world, to the physical mm -hmm. world. I mean, in a way that these other generations don't, I'm not saying it's better or anything, but it's just, we're the, we're the end, we're the end of the line. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think it's a very valid concern if you if you're new in this in the space or if you you know your name is not widely out there if if the first thing out of the gate that you write gets you dogpiled on Twitter that's going to suck even if even if it's not a matter of somebody coming along and saying well you're you're not allowed to publish anything ever again it's going to be really hard psychologically to to get back on the horse right yeah and so for me um I don't care as much because I don't, well, I think I just have a kind of personality that I don't, I don't care as much. I mean, Bachi yeah. and I were talking about that also. Like there's a certain kind of temperament, I think, that is just lends itself to mm -hmm. being a little more controversial. But uh, I, I think everything is different. I, every case is different. Every person handles it differently. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, you know, you have to be, you have to be unassailable. I mean, the thing is, don't go out there half cocked. And yeah. not have your arguments lined up properly and and then and then get dragged. Like, you know, if you've really done done your due diligence and done the best quality piece you can do and you know deep down that you were right, if people mm -hmm. people yell at you on Twitter, it doesn't feel nearly as bad as mm -hmm. when they yell at you and you know that they're right deep down. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah, for sure. Um, 
And, you know, I, I, I thought you'd be the perfect person to discuss this with too, because I've had a recent theory and you were actually one of the first guests I had on the podcast, uh, talking about kind of like, uh, cancel culture and everything. I told you about what happened with me on YouTube in 2019. And since then, uh, I've had a lot of authors on here talking about these things. So anyways, as I look at the landscape, I wonder if this internet dogpiling is something that people or writers should even be as afraid of. And here's why it, it almost Peter Bogosian actually said this when he was on my podcast, right? He's like, oh, it'll just get you more publicity. Like I, I look around at the landscape and I'm like, people are almost rewarded for being controversial or saying these things like now, now that I've talked with so many people, because, uh, you know, I'm sure you've talked with writers about this too. I have to make sure that I don't just do it just to get a reaction and like, just, yeah. you know, steer away from your actual values and morals. But do you think it's as big as a, a, of an issue? Because I know right now, I, if me and you were talking and I just said something crazy and all of a sudden the internet came out after me, I have a group of people who I've, who I know where I could be like, Hey, look what's happening to me. And they would bring their followers and everything. And, you know, the, just the yeah. Twitter mobs would argue with each other and I'd be fine, you know, but I, I don't know if people realize that. And I just wonder if you, if you think that people should be as afraid or if it's kind of balancing itself out. I don't think people like us should be afraid. I think people who mm. work for big institutions should be afraid. I feel, I think, university professors should be afraid if they say something in class that's going to ultimately get them censured or possibly fired in some way. I think yeah. people, people in the real world, the normies are the ones that are afraid and should be afraid. Uh -huh. So, you know, it's a little bit of a, it's, you know, I, I feel like it's a little bit of a, of a red herring because people think, oh, well, all these, there's, you know, all these people in the arts and the media getting canceled and, you know, then they just go on and they have a bigger platform and it works for them. And it works to their advantage. That's true sometimes. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. it's always the, the people that you're talking about who survived cancel culture, that's because you know about them because they survived, right? Yeah. <laughs> there, I, there's, there's plenty yeah. of people who did not survive who you never heard from again. Yeah. And they are canceled also. So this idea that like, oh, there's no such thing because look at all these people. That's, I, I have heard like otherwise intelligent people make that argument and it's so, it's yeah. like nonsensical. No, I mean, I, I just, I can't tell you, I'm sure you hear from these people too. I, people that they, they can't say anything at their, at their parent, you know, at their mm -hmm. in their parents' group or at their job, at their, in their law office, everywhere, every kind of job. I don't care if you're a teacher you're, you know, a, a, a factory worker. I mean, there was the case of the, of the um, utility worker in Southern California who was like somebody took video of him because his hand was hanging out. Yeah, did you watch that documentary like, from Monica oh, Lewinsky? Uh, they like uh, covered it and stuff. I was wondering. If that's oh, they covered that too. case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, so it's it's really it, it it is a thing. I mean, the thing is, cancel culture is a thing. It's just not the same culture that everybody thinks it is. It's mm -hmm. not people like us, it's normal people. Yeah. And and the thing is, it's if so people like uh, this, you know, the people who signed the Harper's letter, people's like, those people are, why are yeah. they complaining? Look, they signed the Harper's letter. Well, the reason we signed it was because there's a whole bunch of people who can't. Yeah. And that's the idea. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and the other thing too is, you know, you can only be canceled by your own side. So mm. if you do something, if you get dragged on Twitter, if you're on the left and you get dragged on Twitter by the right, that's good for you. That will increase your currency. Like that only helps you. That's why all these people, you know, the laziest pundit job in the world is just antagonizing the other side yeah, so that they can attack you. And you can say, look how terrible they are. They attacked me. And then you get a million more followers. That's just, I have no interest in that transaction. That is, yeah. That is just slovenly. That is like intellectual sloth. Okay. Yeah. But but, you know, I do notice too that, um, I feel like there's a lot of people running around kind of saying that they're canceled, because it's like cool. Yeah. yeah. Or they want or they want to be. Um. You know, I'm so canceled. Oh my god. Oh no no no. And and I'm thinking like, 
I don't, I don't know about no. that. <laughs> no, like, no, Sorry. Uh, I, I, I often tell people because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm an affiliate link, but I'm a, I'm an affiliate with BetterHelp Online Therapy. And I have to say, like, when I got canceled, I, I started using BetterHelp Online Therapy. Like, when I got, like, I needed psychological. It sounds like you help. were canceled. Yeah, I, I'm not. I, I, I think you're, um, you're a, you're a legit canceled. Yes, actually, you. actually, so, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. we need to start vetting people a little bit better, and people can't throw it around all willy nilly because that's what happens, especially. Yeah, that's a whole other episode we can get into where where they're just like, oh, they're, they're canceling, they're canceling this. Like I've heard them talk about this with like legislation and stuff. I'm like, are you are, like, right. do words have definitions anymore? I know. I know. Yeah, right. It, Criticizing something or disagreeing with it is not canceling. It's yeah. not violence, nor is it canceling. So yeah, okay. <laughs> so with with that, so going back to the whole conversation about you know. Uh, traditional publishing versus self-publishing. I could see writers, you know, coming to your class and stuff and being concerned about this is that, like you mentioned, like institutions are what you have to worry about, right? So is this something that if somebody does want to work with a publisher, that is something that they should consider? Or because I've had authors on here who have written, like I recently had Charles Love on here who wrote a book just criticizing BLM sixteen nineteen project. I had uh, Bonnie. I just Kerrigan's met story. him. I just met him at a yeah. party two nights ago. Oh, that's what, so funny. What a yeah. yeah. So, so do you think that they're like even if you're writing about a controversial subject, like you can pull a, you know, you can just be like, oh, who did Charles write for, and you know, just go to that publisher. Like, do you think there are publishers who are kind of there to? Yeah, they don't. Well, they don't want to take a risk, right? I mean, like, yeah, a, a pu publishers are really scared right now because they're huge. Mm conglomerates and they don't there's a lot of money at stake they don't want to risk having to you know take a book to to pulp a book for any reason i mean the littlest thing that's mm -hmm. going to cause it's going to cause a problem they're just going to cut their losses they're not yeah. going to they're not going to you know even if they know even if some individual higher up at the company knows that it's that it's bs it's not in their interest to sit there and, and ride out the storm yeah, um, they just need to cut their losses. I mean, it's like, you know, they, they they will take a book off the shelves and destroy a book. I mean, it's happened more and more. And their sensitive sensitivity readers a few years ago, that was a joke. That was a punchline. Yeah, Everybody made fun of thing. it. And now there's that standard. Yeah. Um. So, uh, yeah, it is, it is a thing. So, again, that is another argument for self-publishing. However, I do think that this is this is not sustainable. I mean, interesting material. If, if, if really, no, if the rule is that you're not allowed to write a, a novel, say, about any character that's not the exact same identity category as you yeah. are, that's not going to last very long. No. You can't write literature that way. That's not the way it works. Yeah. If that continues to be the rule, it's the, the publishers, they'll, they'll, they'll capitulate. That's just yeah. nonsense. Well, it's it's also kind of silly, too, because let's say I, I was into writing fiction, uh, which has never been my thing, but could I only write about overweight, half-black characters who were former drug addicts? You know what I mean? At when least every... you're half-black. You got to lean into that. that. Yeah. yeah. So, it, yeah, it just seems like, so would all the characters just be one person or would books have to be this gigantic collaborative project? I know. But but uh, since I only have a little bit more of your time, and I'm, I bug you about this on Twitter all the time, and now that I have you face-to-face, -face, I get to bug you again. Because for me, so we're going to be talking about your writing, because you you mention it, and you're like, oh, you know, I get these ideas, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to put them out there. I'm like, damn it, Megan, start a Substack, right? Because for me, like, I get this idea, and I'll be like on my morning walk. That's when it happens. And I'm just like, I got to sit down at my keyboard and get this out to the world. So how... This is a multi-layered question, Megan, because I've just been dying to know. How do you fight that urge to just get these words out? Or do you have like a journal where you're just like, you know, write them down or whatever? And, you know, something that you and Lee were talking about was you, you got to get your work out there. You got to get your thoughts out there, your ideas and stuff. Because I'm sitting here, I'm like, I would love to know Megan's thoughts on some of the things happening, um, you know? So so talk talk to me. Talk to me about what's going on in the in the mind of Megan. I love this sentence. How do I fight the urge to get the words down? Well, yeah. that's called procrastination. That's called writer's block. And I don't <laughs> want to write. I don't think uh, any, I, uh, I mean, the problem is, is that I don't have an, I guess, like, I, I have a certain standard I have to hold myself to. I mean, mm. a, if I was to do a Substack, that's basically making myself write a column every week or every day or several times a week. And that's a Got lot it. of work. 
Yeah. It's a lot of work. And I don't know, frankly, how I don't know how big my audience would be. I don't know. I mean, the other reason I don't know how big my audience would be is I'm not going to bang on about cancel culture every time. You know, in order to get these kinds of numbers, you've got to reliably give them something. You know, you've got to be like, you know, I, I, I could, I could, you know, write about gender ideology every day and probably get a pretty big audience. I mean, it would be a limit. It would be narrow, but it would be pretty deep there. So, you know, mm. I think people succeed. I'm speaking really broadly because they have a specific area that they're covering, you know, a, a, a niche, like they're, they're talking about, you know, some kind of sports or some kind of gaming or like mental health or something yeah. like that. And so like, you're going to have like everyone in the world who's interested in that is going to listen to you. Yeah. So there's that way of doing it. Or there, you know, and right right now there's the, I'm going to obsess about every, you know, Twitter dust up. I'm going to, you know, make fun of the latest liberal TikTok yeah. <laughs> video. Like, I love listening to that stuff, but I'm not going to do it. Like, I just don't, yeah. it doesn't feel, it's it doesn't feel nour nourishing to me. Yeah. So, the, so what would happen, I feel, is if I tried to do a sub stack, I would try to do my little, like, nuanced, pieces and they're never little they end up being like you know three thousand words or more yeah. and that's a shit ton of work yeah. and i yeah. don't <laughs> want to do it for not enough money you know what i'm saying <laughs> no i i hear you and that's yeah and, and that's you know the other reason why you know I, I really enjoyed uh your books and your podcast and, and the nuance of it all because i every time i sit down to write like a sub stack i'm like 500 words, Chris, get it out in 500 words. Next thing I know, it's been like two hours. I'm thousands of words in, you know. But that's beautiful, that. but that's good. You know, the thing is like 500 words, you know, when I was a column, when I was a newspaper columnist, I had to hit 730 words every mm. time because it was in the newspaper. That was the space. I mean, it was online, but it was in, uh, in the physical newspaper. That's really hard. Writing 500 words is uh, harder than writing several thousand words, but also that's why Substack exists because there isn't a time limit. That's like why podcasts exist because you can yeah. talk for hours as opposed to being on you know, NPR and having mm -hmm. 40 minutes maximum. Yeah, so let me ask you this. It'll be one of my last questions, I promise. But I'm thinking about you know just uh, the standard that you hold yourself to because I'm sure you've had People come to your, uh, your 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 master classes and workshops and all that, who are perfectionists, right? So where do you find that balance between like going back and retweaking and like, oh, did I say this right or not? And just redoing the same thing over and over and over and just saying, hey, this is good, this is good enough. So what what is some advice there? Because that's that's something I think a lot of writers struggle with as well. Oh, it's a one word answer: deadline. Ah, uh, give yourself a deadline, make somebody else give you a deadline. You know, it's as a, I, I, a great writer, or I can't remember who it was. Somebody, somebody I ran into one time said, it's never finished. It's just due. D-U-E. It's just, it's never, it's never finished. It's just late. Got to hand it in. That's it. Uh, you know, I, I like because that. that's, and that's why it's so it's liberating, you know, it's, it's constraining to have these deadlines, but it's also incredibly liberating. The big thing I learned being a columnist all those years is that, you know, you can't be precious about it. You're not going to knock it out of the park every week. In mm -hmm. fact, you're rarely going to, I had Brett Stevens on the podcast, the New, you know, New York times columnist, and he had some, he had it broken down into statistics and it's, it's kind of like batting average. Like, you know, if one out of every 10 columns is great. That's amazing. You know, yeah. most of them are going to be like, oh, you know, okay. Some of them are going to suck. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them are going to be a little better than okay. And a few of them are going to be great, but most of them are going to be right there in the middle of, of mediocrity. <laughs> yeah. And that's different than holding yourself. You can hold yourself to a high standard and still produce mediocre work if mm -hmm. you're, if you have to, you know, generate a lot of content. But, you know, accepting that and not being precious about it is yeah. actually that's a that's that's maturity in in any art. Right. That that's called being a mature creator when you yeah. you hold yourself to a high standard, but you also allow yourself to be finished and move to move on to the next thing. Yeah, I, I'm slowly but surely learning that myself. The other day I, I did a freelance piece and I 
I just wasn't happy with it. I'm like, what is this? This is garbage. And I sent it over to the editor and she just loved it. She's like, this is amazing. I love it. You know? And then, so that brings me also back to that that quality question, you know? Because I'm like, oh, well, I thought this was trash, but you loved it. So, hey, and it it performed pretty well with the publication. But, but yeah, so Megan, I, I would keep you here forever if I could, but I can't. And for everybody, for everybody listening who was like, you know, Megan knows her stuff. I need to learn from her to write what is going on with your next class what's the date is this okay is this the last one that you're doing for like five years or is this something you're going to do quarterly no well these started off being in-person classes so they started Mm -hmm. off being like several times a year just in my apartment in new york Mm -hmm. um and then that had to stop for the pandemic uh and then i actually i did i did one of those in september but so now yeah so now i'm doing them on zoom and um hopefully they'll be ongoing i mean i don't think i could do them probably more than like five times a year but um the next one starts in january it's january 10th through february 28th it's once a week it's going to be on mondays eight consecutive mondays from three to six p.m eastern time Mm -hmm. i had people from all over for the last one i had somebody in ireland in the last class and she was up until 2 a.m her time so i (laughs) i moved the date i moved the time back a little bit to accommodate more people um and um you have to apply uh uh enrollment is uh limited so to 12 people and we Mm -hmm. we workshop you know you 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 bring your piece in we read ahead of time we workshop we meet for three hours yeah, no, it's it's a workshop. It's a workshop. You got to, uh, but you know, we talk, we're going to have guest speakers and, mm. um, but it's really primarily a workshop. So yeah, so you do have to apply and you can go to Daum Masterclass, D-A-U-M masterclass.com. The application deadline for the next uh, class is December 20th. And, um, yeah, you can go there and find out all about the the fees and the um, application requirements and all of that. Awesome. And for everybody else, where can they find you? Where's the best place? Is it is it Twitter? Is it your podcast? Is it all of the above? I heard <laughs> I heard that you started up a YouTube channel. You joined us YouTubers. Yeah, we talked so. about that last time. You and I. That was that was your mentorship. Yeah, that the the that's very much still uh, in process. So. Uh, yeah, the YouTube channel, I can't quite decide what that is. But yes, there's a number of videos on there um, that are extra that have not been on the podcast. Although some of them, the problem is they're so good and then I don't want to just confine them to that. So I've been taking yeah. them and making them part of the podcast. Um, right. So you can find me at megandown.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at Megan, and that's with an H, underscore down, D-A-U-M. You can go to the unspeakablepodcast.com to find out about the podcast. And it's on all the usual places, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, et cetera. And, uh, you know, you can just type my name into Google and probably misspell it. And it'll probably still, you'll probably still find me eventually. Yeah. And what everybody needs to do is go start binging your books as well. So I'm going to link, I'm going to link all that down okay. in the in the show notes everything everything down there so yeah i i love having you on megan we'll probably end up doing this again sometime but anytime but, chris I'm, but, I'm a fan i'm thrilled to come on and uh yeah thanks thank you for all your advice you've been very supportive and um a font of of information and wisdom All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Megan. I could do a hundred episodes with her. Megan It's such a delight to chat with. And yeah, she's, she's so insightful and just, you know, she thinks outside of the box and she's, again, she's a phenomenal writer. So I was really glad as somebody who writes, I'm working on my next book. I do freelance work. I, you know, just write, like I get this urge, kind of like I talked about in this episode, I get this urge, just write like this morning, that Substack piece I wrote. I woke up at like 4.30 in the morning. I was thinking about this conversation a bit more about canceling student loan debt. It's like 5 a.m. And I'm just like, all right, time to write. And I write like 3,600 words by like 6 a.m. and just put it out there into the world. So, you know, I really appreciate Megan taking the time to come on here and chat about writing a little bit. But but if you would like more one-on-one time uh, with Megan to improve your writing or you know anybody who's interested, again, the deadline to sign up for Megan's masterclass 
is December 20th. So make sure you check that out. That's linked down in the description. But uh, anyways, like regardless of the masterclass or if you sign up, make sure you're following Megan over on Twitter. Check out her podcast, The Unspeakable Podcast. And I've also linked a couple of her books that I really enjoyed. That's all down in the description below. But yeah, like I said, Megan is just a phenomenal writer. And I don't care who you are. I promise you, I promise you, you will enjoy her books. Um, because, you know, she she writes about, you know, her life and upbringing and just, you know, just her introspection. I just really, really enjoy that. I really love when an author writes and just like challenges their own thoughts and beliefs and all that kind of stuff. Like it is just, mwah, just chef's kiss. I love it. So yeah, head down to the description, check out all that stuff. But if you haven't yet, make sure you're following me as well over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure you're following it. Make sure you're subscribed. All right. I do a ton of episodes. I think this week I'll be releasing two or three, depending on what's going on. Might have to temporarily leave my apartment. So I'm going to try to batch some episodes <laughs> today. But yeah, if you're following me and following the podcast, you won't miss any upcoming episodes. And some really easy ways to support the podcast that do not cost you a penny is to share these episodes. Share this episode with Megan or any other episode you like. Share it on social media. And take just a couple seconds to head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. All this stuff really helps get the word out. The algorithms love it. So I really appreciate it if you do that. And some other easy ways to support the podcast. Again, if you become a paid Substack subscriber, it's $5 a month or $50 for the year, you get all of the regular episodes early, so you can check those out, and I'm working on some other perks. And another way to support the podcast down in the description is an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, therapy is a huge part of my life. I'm regularly trying to improve my mental health, so I stay sane and I stay sober. And I've personally used BetterHelp as well as a lot of friends, family members, and I can't recommend it enough. Uh, when I got canceled, it saved my ass so if you want affordable online therapy working with a licensed therapist head down to this description check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy all right so another huge thanks to megan for coming back on the podcast to chat about writing make sure you apply for her masterclass by december 20th that's linked down in the description and for all of you thanks so much for tuning in and i will see you next time with a brand new episode